it's Steve and Dave again. We are Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. No doubt we all want to catch more fish. I want to, and Dave needs to. Ooh, that hurts. But we're all about fly fishing and our love for the outdoors. So let's get after it. If you were captivated by A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean, either the novella or the movie, by the way, the movie turns 30 this year. Can you wow. believe it? Wow. wow. Anyway, you'll be intrigued by a book recently authored by Norman's son, John. John MacLean has the MacLean literary gene. He spent three decades at the Chicago Tribune and then wrote five books about wildland fire. And oh yes, he fly fishes too. Uh, today, Dave and I are going to share a few reflections on the book. We really enjoyed reading it, and there's a lot in it that made us think about life and fly fishing. So uh, here we go. Why don't we start with some stuff that we really resonated with. Um, Dave, one thing that I resonated with, uh, something that's fly fishing related, is just the difference in the fly fishing styles of John's dad, Norman, and their family friend, George Krunenberg. Uh, so, for example, uh, John says this about George. He said, uh, uh, well, he says, George's and my father's uh, styles were very different but complementary. Uh, Norman McLean was a careful and patient fisher of trout. He would approach a hole as he would a book by pausing first to assess the river, checking the table of contents, as it were. Uh, he worked a hole in a methodical manner so as not to spoil the water before he could fish it. And uh, he, he always started with a plan. And, and John says about his dad, Norman, he says, he took fishing personally. If a promising hole failed to yield a rise, his shoulders would droop and he'd assume a beaten, downcast look. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? Now, contrast that with uh, George. Uh, George uh, took a different approach. He says, unlike my father, George did not engage in any preliminaries when he started to fish a hole. He aimed his first cast at the prime spot where he thought the largest fish would be. Uh, no working up to the big moment in lesser water. And uh, what, what made me laugh, too, that is if he uh, you know, didn't catch anything, like, hey, no big deal, he would just move on to the next run. So, so he kind of cut to the chase. Yeah, There's yeah. real no art to it. I know, exactly. <laughs> I don't think you and I are that different in our styles, but that's always, uh, yeah, that, that can happen. You know, we, we all fish a little bit differently, and so I thought that was, that was kind of fun. I know you've said before, uh, lovingly or maybe in a very complaining, whiny kind of fashion that I, I cover water really quickly. You do. I, and I thought that, uh, that I covered water quickly. When I fish with other people, I, I'm surprised at how fast I'll fish. You know, you'll hit the yeah. run, mm -hmm. two, three casts, you're on to the next run. Yeah. But you're, my gosh, Steve, you're faster than I am. I, it's hard to fish. Faster than Jimmy John's. <laughs> Jimmy John's. <laughs> yes, that's right. You know, I was fascinated by just the writing. In fact, my new business is a is a coaching business yeah. for, for young writers. And uh, John uh, wrote this as a memoir. And writing a memoir is excruciatingly difficult. You have to keep the reader interested. You have to raise and, and resolve tension. And it's just hard to do. So I thought he did a good job in this book. And it's really a bit different from his dad's book, although certainly uh, A River Runs Through It 
by Norm McLean, which is that novella is a, is a story, right? It's a, um, it's fiction, but even though it was based on the on their life, on in some ways, but but Young Men in Fire, which was the other popular uh, story by Norm McLean, I guess it is half memoir too. It's basically not about the Man Gulch Fire so much as it about his journey trying to understand why so many people died in the Man Gulch Fire. So, yeah. and and the only other thing I'll say is this: is that John. McLean has also written these five books on fire, right? So that's interesting yeah. in and of itself. His dad wrote uh, the, the story about the Man Gulch mm-hmm. fire in 1949, and then John, the son, is a bit obsessed about forest fires. So mm-hmm. it's just interesting uh, from a writing perspective. I thought that was interesting. You know, something else I resonated with was uh, a statement that he made. Um, I can't remember now if uh, he said this about his dad or... If he said this about himself, I'm going to have to go back and, and look. But uh, he said, leaving Montana physically never meant moving away in spirit. It's like, man, I, I get that. I, I remember pulling out of the Gallatin Valley almost 16 years ago and moving here to uh, the Chicago area. And, you know, I, I left physically and I love it here, but. In some ways, I've never moved away in spirit, and th- there's part of me where I probably consider myself more a, a product of the, the West, the American West, than, uh, than anywhere else, although I'm, I've certainly been shaped by the Midwest. I, I grew up, you know, my years, well, my school years were uh, in, here in the Midwest, and then now I'm, I'm back at this season of my life. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I get that, and I don't know, maybe other other people who've made that kind of move, or even if you have a connection to a river, maybe maybe you've never lived in Colorado or Montana, but you go there and uh, when, when you leave it to come back home, uh, you you leave it physically, but there's, a, there's still that connection that you have to it. Yeah, that's certainly true for me. I grew up in North Dakota and I go back there, well, several times a year, but certainly every fall to hunt. My father is still alive. And there's that same sense where you you leave, but you don't really leave. And what was so interesting to me about that cabin, so what was really uh, unique, I think, about their, their family, they have this cabin in, is it near Sealy yeah, Lake? Yeah, it's on Sealy Lake. Yeah, yeah we actually mm-hmm. had a friend whose family yeah. had, a, had a place on Sealy Lake, and yeah. he ended up being a professor at Eastern University in, Eastern in Washington. Washington. Yeah, Eastern Washington. That's right. EWU, is that it? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and his dad worked for the Forest Service, I think, too, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice connection. So, but one thing I love is this idea of families having these these cabins that stay in the family for a long time, and they mm-hmm. become a center of gravity for the family. And I was thinking about my dad. So when my dad retired at 65, he sold his home and then built a home. And he built a bigger home. Usually at that age, you build a smaller home. But he said, you know, for the next 20 years, my family's going to be growing. I will have grandkids. And I want them to come back and have a place to stay. So we had five kids in our family. And that, fa- that, that home really became a center of gravity. Now, it's not like a generational cabin like what John and, uh, McLean and Norma McLean had. But... It just was a, it's, it became a real center for the family. I, I just love that. And mm-hmm. I think 
there's something about home. Again, this book is called Home Waters. He's talking yeah. about obviously the Blackfoot River and and where he fished as a child. But I love that idea of the book of this kind of center of gravity for a family to, to kind of orbit around and 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 to uh, and and make a generational. There's some generational continuity. Something else too that that resonated with me was. Uh, was John's statement about his father, Norman. Uh, Norman was a professor at, uh, of English at University of Chicago for his adult life, and he said, my father needed both worlds, a high-powered intellectual life and the life of woods and rivers. And, and I love that combination myself. Good night, I'm not the intellectual that Norman McLean was, or a lot of people were, but I, I find myself kind of moving back, I think seamlessly, between... Uh, both worlds, and, and I think both worlds uh, enrich each other. I, I think I'm a better thinker, a better pastor, a better teacher, a better scholar, you know, because of my time, you know, in the woods and on the rivers, and 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 then I think, uh, you know, my I'm I'm probably better on the the river, but just because of the well, maybe I know that I need it more just because of the, you know, the, the intellectual part of my life. So yeah, kind of. A, Kind of a cool combination. Yeah, that is a nice combo. I don't have that same resonance. I will say, my wife the other day was talking about the Enneagram, and I'm an eight on the Enneagram, which is, you know, causes all the problems in my life. But, <laughs> yeah. but one thing she said is she said, I'm so not like you. She said, you need fly fishing to get centered and to really come back to what's important. Yeah. And she says, I'm not like that. She says, you need a full day out or a week out. Yeah. And she says, that really changes you. Yeah. And she was, she is right about that and wonderfully so because she yep. tolerates my fly fishing. But yep. yeah, I, it's interesting. That's is a nice comment. The intellectual, the, the scholar, and then the fly fisher. Uh, I can see that. And that's certainly, re as I look at you, Stephen, observe you, that's certainly true for yeah, you. Yeah, I think it is. Well, hey, there's also some fascinating stuff in the book. And, uh, yeah, kind of related to the pandemic, uh, it was one really interesting detail. So, so the Spanish flu hit Missoula in October uh, 1918. And uh, I think we're pretty much done with uh, any kind of information on the pandemic yeah. or any kind of historical information. We just want to be done with it. But this was an interesting uh, comment in John's book, In Home Waters. He said, church services in Missoula were curtailed and ministers barred from their pulpits were obliged to speak to their flocks in essays published in the Missoulian, which is the, the rag, the hometown rag there. Yeah. Saloon keepers though kept their doors open up until the end of the pandemic. <laughs> that's so classic, isn't Man, it? I know. You, you can't go to church, but you yeah. can drink. Well, that's not so bad. Yeah. I'm not so opposed to that. Oh, man. Well, and he said, too, that, that they used some of the same tools, he called them, to combat the disease. Uh, quarantine and then good hygiene, like hand washing, disinfectants, limiting public gatherings. I don't know if they wore masks, but... <laughs> <laughs> it depends on if they... Well, they were yeah. in Montana, so probably not. Yeah, no, that's right. Yes. <laughs> They've been in Illinois. Yeah. They would have had a mask mandate. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> It'd probably still be a mask yeah. mandate from no. 1918. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, man. I'm going to be laughing about that the rest of the day, Gosh. Dave. 
Oh, that's too funny. Oh, man. You know, something else that was really fascinating in that book was that when Norman was a student at Dartmouth, uh, he was the editor of the humor magazine uh, during his junior and senior years. And when he graduated, uh, he turned it over to a younger friend that he befriended, a guy by the name of Theodore Geisel, Ted Geisel, who said that if Norman had not picked him as his successor, his whole life would have been a failure. And Norman said about Geisel, he says, he was the funniest man I ever knew. And I think he's right. Uh, I've read a lot of Geisel's works, and, and I bet a lot of our listeners have too. It's just that we know him by his pen name, Dr. Seuss. Oh, what a nice connection. Yeah, isn't that cool? That's so, a nice uh, little connection. Yeah, so Norman McLean was kind of the guy who mentored and encouraged uh, Dr. Seuss. Huh. Isn't, that something? Is, isn't he on the the book band list now for some reason i think maybe so oh, lord yeah yeah who isn't huh? yeah who isn't exactly no, ma'am yeah yeah i thought i thought this was funny too that norman uh, left for the well after he graduated from dartmouth he went back to montana but he left for the university of chicago to work on his doctorate because he was turned down for a high school teaching job in missoula oh that's yeah. great yeah i know i guess uh you know degree from Dartmouth wasn't sufficient. Probably he didn't have the, even back in that day, I guess didn't have it the, the right teaching certificate or whatever. But can you imagine that? Nope, we, we can't, you know, we can't hire this McLean guy. Yes. Well, that, that reminds me of another piece in the book where uh, that all the Eastern book publishers rejected A River Runs Through It. And so University of Chicago, a university press, had to print it yeah so yeah. in a sense he was spurned by all of his east coast that's uh, right his east coast uh peers he had been at dartmouth right yeah. which is an mm -hmm. ivy league school but all those people rejected his work i always tell writers in fact we interviewed once for one of our i have another podcast called uh gosh journey 66 book writing podcast and and we interviewed a, a book agent recently and she was a young, energetic agent, and she receives a lot of her submissions by email. But one of the things she said that, that struck me, she said, you know, writers are not persistent enough. They send out 10 mm. emails. They send out 10 proposals. She said they should send out 150. Wow. She was a little bit overstating <clears throat> uh, the fact mm -hmm. there. But when you think about Norma McLean's book, think about all the rejections I don't know. It just was encouraging to say, you know, be persistent. And Norman mm -hmm. McLean had to be persistent. Yeah, that's very true. I also had not fully grasped that Norman wrote A River Runs Through It and Young Men in Fire after he was 70. So yeah. mm -hmm. it was after he retired. It's just a great encouragement for those of you who maybe are in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. You can still be really productive. And there's still good things you can do yeah. later in life. And Norman would be a great example. If he had not written uh, A River Runs Through It, we might never know him, right? People like Norman McLean give us hope that there's you can be productive well into your 60s and 70s and 80s even. And you think about Peter Drucker, the great management writer, or Oliver Wendell Holmes. I think he died in his 90s, right? He was a Supreme Court justice. So it was just really encouraging yeah. reading about... Uh, Norman McLean from John's perspective, the son. 
Hey, let's talk about some funny stuff. Uh, there, there's just a couple things in the book that we thought were hilarious. Uh, one was uh, what their friend George Cronenberg uh, did to market his grasshopper. So he came up with this grasshopper fly that really worked good, and he he tried to sell them. I don't think he was having a lot of luck. In fact, I'll just let John McClain tell the story. He said, George put his flies up for sale in saloons and shops in Missoula, but making a name for himself in a crowded field proved difficult. He solved the problem one day when he caught a magnificent basket full of fish on a secret stretch of the Blackfoot. He displayed the catch at Bob Ward's Sporting Goods Store. Oh, man, I've been in Bob Ward's in Bozeman for years. And they have, apparently, there's one in Missoula. Well, he, he displayed the catch there in a glass-covered case on a bed of ice with a note, caught on the Cronenberg's grasshopper on the Blackfoot River at Clearwater Bridge. Uh, of, of course, John says his secret spot was nowhere near there. Uh, for weeks afterward, the Cronenberg's grasshopper, a big cork thing that works only on occasion, was a sellout. <laughs> and fishermen lined up basket to basket at the Clearwater Bridge, which even back then was fished out. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, so man. two things. Another funny thing is uh, <laughs> that uh, he, he started using like daredevils and stuff like that. And so let me just read this. As a young man, he, meaning Norman, returned from Dartmouth with a spinning rod and daredevils, tackle seldom seen in Montana, and was wildly successful with a rig until everybody started doing it and he went back to a fly rod. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't make it into a river runs through it, did no, it? No, it yeah. didn't. He wasn't yeah. quite the purist we thought he yeah, was. Yeah, that, that's right. From shadow, from uh, spinning casting to shadow casting, huh? <laughs> the other, other thing I thought was 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 funny but also so true was Norman took fishing personally hmm. and I quote uh, John here in his book if a promising hole failed to yield a rise his shoulders would droop and he'd assume a beaten downcast look how could such a beautiful piece of water be so refusing he'd say I thought that was so good man I mean he, he had all the emotions of every one of us as yep. fly fishers probably later into his life, I, I feel like I learned that early. I used to see uh, a run and think, oh man, there's no way I'll ever get skunked in that. Now it's more like, ah, oh, that looks too good to be true. I probably won't catch a fish. So Now on a more serious note, um, I want to talk a little bit about the death of his of Norman's brother, Paul, who would have been John's uncle. You know, in the, in the novella, A River Runs Through It, they you know, the story implies, and, and then the movie portrays uh, Paul dying in, uh, being beaten to death and dying in Montana, but that wasn't the story. Um, you know, he, Paul actually died in Chicago. It was May of 1938. Um, John tells the account, uh, Paul and his girlfriend, who was a nurse, went to an afternoon White Sox game at Comiskey Park, and then they went to dinner and after visiting friends, he took her home and then walked to the Weldon Arms Hotel where he was staying. And I guess it was just a couple blocks from Norman and Jesse's home. Uh, they lived just south of the University of Chicago. Dave, that, wouldn't that be the Hyde Park neighborhood? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been there quite a bit. In uh, fact, uh, President Obama has a place yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the, the next morning, uh, Paul was found in an alley with a deep head wound revealing that he had been uh, beaten, and uh, uh, sadly, he, he died 
sometime that day in the yeah, hospital. Yeah, it was like the next day about 1, one yeah. o'clock, 1 p.m. Yeah. And the McLean family speculated that Paul was simply walking around like he liked to do at night. And Norman had warned him that this was not Montana, uh, but he wasn't persuaded that he shouldn't wander around and, you know, whenever and uh, whenever he pleased. So the police captain who oversaw the inquiry into Paul's death concluded that it was a robbery gone bad. So, so apparently it wasn't because of a bad gambling debt or something like that. Yeah. He just, mm-hmm. I guess, arguably he was at the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Right. And that's kind of what the book implies, that maybe it was a bad gambling debt. And of course, uh, that, that's why it's, it was a novella. I mean, Norman McLean, you know, included a lot of things that were, were true, but he... You know, he's, he's telling a story. He wasn't trying to give family history. Well, Dave, any, any final observations? There were places, I have to say, where I got lost in this book. Uh, one was a stretch in which John goes deep into the, the connection between where Lewis and Clark camped and the story of his family. And, and if I had been his editor, I would have probably shortened that. Uh, I, you could really tell it was important to the writer. And at that, I just, it slowed down for me at that point. I thought, you know, mm-hmm. this, this could have been tightened. So John's a great writer. I would not want to distract from the book. Overall, the book was just really powerful. And I think it's just really wonderful to get this view of Norman McLean, of Paul McLean, of the Reverend, you know, Norman's father, and the whole family and John's life through his eyes as mm-hmm. the son. You know, when I read a book, one of the things I, I like to look for is, well, what's the big idea that, that holds the book together? Kind of the peg on which everything else hangs. And I, and I found it harder for me to, or I found it harder to pin that down. And it just could have been me, but maybe, maybe this gets back to what you were saying. I think there were a lot of pieces that, that uh, John McClain wanted to bring in. But maybe if there's a thread that runs through it, uh, no pun intended, uh, it, perhaps it's the power of place, you know, both the waters and the cabin, maybe the power of place in a family from, from one generation to another. I mean, you kind of alluded to that earlier, and uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's the big takeaway. We always like to say in a memoir, there's got to be some meta idea that, that upon which all the scenes in the book in the memoir hang because you're not going to include everything in your life when you write a memoir mm-hmm. there's some things that are included and other things that are excluded and what goes in and what you know what ends up on the cutting room floor is the result of of this meta idea so i i think you're probably right obviously the the name of the book home waters alludes to that but it really i like this whole thing about sense of place yeah. and mm-hmm. and in the generations and how important that is when you think about that that makes you sad a little bit because Mm -hmm. how few of us have had that yeah yep oh that's so true any other observations the other observation i would make is the power of the network effect if you're the son of norman mclean you have so many open doors for fishing publishing and other opportunities doesn't mean that john's writing isn't uh, worthy of being published. It is. He's a great writer. He's won awards. He's very successful. That's not the point. But uh, but you do get the sense that A River Runs Through It made the McLean family into a, a prominent family historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, John was a fully grown adult by the time his dad wrote the book, uh, probably in his 40s, I would imagine. Probably, yeah. And the book was made into a movie, So and his father died before its release. But 
um, you see that that book really made that family into a prominent family. And so it's hard to, you know, think of the word McLean or Norma McLean and not think of the movie. So uh, what's interesting to that to me is that uh, in my other business, we're working with an author who's working, about, it's called a book called The Quest for Legitimacy, how children of prominent families find their place in this world. And so I was really interested in reading about John's life relative to his famous father and and you really see someone who has carved out his own journey and really found his own sense of legitimacy and and yet stayed really close and tied back to the family. It's really a wonderful, uh, a wonderful story. Well, hey, let me read the final paragraph. It's interesting. John's dad ended his novella with, I am haunted by waters. And if I remember, he talked about a you know, he talked about fishing in the you know, Arctic light of the canyon, but I can't remember if he talked about a big fish there or not. But at the end of John's book, he talks about catching a big fish, a uh, big trout on, on the Blackfoot. And this is, how his, this is how his book ends. Here's the final paragraph. Life doesn't stop when you reach a peak. It moves on as before, just as a river does after a fight with a big fish. On a day like this, though, and after a rainbow trout like that one, the river merged the life of the spirit with the act of fly fishing, a legacy endlessly renewed by the passage of waters, home waters. I was just struck by how his book ended a little bit warmer. You know, his father ends with, I am haunted by waters. But John talks about the legacy that's renewed by the passage of waters, home waters. And there you go. That's the, the thread that runs through it, right? Is, yep. is that the power of place and, and, and the power of place for home uh, for succeeding generations. That's for sure. Well, it's time for uh, great hacks from our book. And this is a new feature we introduced on our previous podcast. It's a bit of wisdom from our book, The Fly Fisher's Book of List, which is uh, available on Amazon.com. It's a bestseller, at least in our minds it is. Uh, <laughs> we thought today it'd be appropriate to share three takeaways from A River Runs Through It. Uh, whether you read the book or watch the movie, there are some themes that may resonate with you. They do with us, especially the deep family ties. Uh, the first one is, sometimes those who are closest to us are the hardest to understand. And as we said in our book, this is one of the saddest but most profound truths of family life especially when there is great pain in the relationship. As Norman McLean wrote, it is those we live with and love and should know who elude us. Yeah, it's so powerful. I can't comment on my family without incriminating myself, but that's so true. The people you love the most, you understand the least. Oh my gosh, is that yep. true? The second one is that you can love somebody completely or someone completely without completely understanding him or her. And I think fly fishing brings together you know, family members, even with, when there is conflict or, or misunderstanding. I would say in my life, uh, it's been hunting in the fall in North Dakota with my dad. There were years when I was in my early 30s in which my dad and I could hardly talk to each other when we were in, in the fall, when we were hunting, there was some a really a big family issue in which we took opposite sides on. But we continued to hunt. And, you know, 40 years later, 30 years later, you know, I call my dad every day. He's 87. We have probably the closest mm -hmm. relationship that I could have ever imagined. But, 
this idea of loving someone completely, even though you don't fully understand them, I think that gives us hope for those we don't fully understand. Yeah, Dave, I, I think that's the big idea of the book. You know, that first that first theme, sometimes those who are closest to us are the hardest to understand. That's, that's the problem. And I, I think the solution, I think the, the book's big idea is, is that recognition that yeah, even though you don't understand somebody completely, you can still love them. Yeah, it's so powerful. Yep. All right, here's the third and final uh, theme that resonated with us, uh, and that is that fly fishing stirs our inconsolable longing, a desire for something beyond ourselves. Uh, wow, you know if you fly fish that the sport evokes peacefulness and a deep sense of satisfaction, but th there's that, it's mingled with that poignant ache or sadness. It's what the British writer C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable longing. And so we affirm Norman MacLean's final line in his novella, I am haunted by waters. Yeah, that, to me that's the great sadness of life, right? Yeah. And oh, I have felt that so many times. Uh, out on the Yellowstone, you're walking back and it, you've had a great day or maybe a poor day. You're hurrying back, you're exhausted. You're in this great expanse, and uh, light is falling, and darkness is coming, mm -hmm. and sometimes there's just this deep sadness. It's hard to explain. It's almost yeah. melancholic. Yeah, yeah. E melancholic. Yep. E. It really I don't know. is. And yeah, McLean captured Norman McLean really captured that as, and I think it's a good balance then with his son coming back and saying, but at the same time. Uh, you know, there, there's something about fishing those familiar places. It, it takes you back home on those home waters. All right, that's all for today. Hey, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing.